0: I'd like to draw your attention to God's Word as we find it in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Stephen is before the Sanhedrin. He's been accused of blasphemy, being a false prophet, teaching against the temple, teaching against the law of Moses. And so here we have... The longest speech or sermon in all of Acts by verse count. And so we're going to jump into it here. We're going to look specifically today at verses 17 to 43. And for the sake of time, what I've decided to do is to not on the front end of this read the entire passage because I'm literally going to walk you through this verse by verse. So to save some time, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to pray and then we'll jump into... Um, The text itself. So please bow with me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the unspeakable gift of Your Word. We thank You for how in it You make Yourself known to us, the depths of Your character, Your glory, Your plan of salvation as it unfolds through every page and is consummated in the deliverance of that Your appointed Deliverer, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, has brought about. Father, we pray that You would give us eyes to see His glory now as we look at Your Word, that You'd give us ears to hear the good news and hearts that rejoice in the fellowship and the communion that we now have with You because Jesus has come to dwell among us. Father, we come as sinners, we come as those who are unworthy, to fellowship and commune with you and with your people. And yet we're thankful that we are justified and considered worthy because of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So come now, Spirit, empower this weak congregation, this weak preacher, that we might worship you together and receive grace upon grace in our risen Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things in His name and for His sake. Amen. Well, one of the most tragic effects of our sin and our idolatry, and there's many tragic effects, but one of the most tragic when we turn away from God and towards our idols in on ourselves is the fact that in our idolatry and our sin, we become blind to reality. And the reason that that happens Scripture is abundantly clear on this, is because we become like the idols that we worship. And so think about this. If you're worshiping a false idol, it's a false god. And so it can't see, it can't speak, it can't think, it can't move. It's blind and deaf and dumb. And so guess what you become when you worship a false idol. You become blind and deaf and dumb. And so what ends up happening as a result of this blindness from our idolatry is when we survey our history, we begin to distort it and pervert it and misunderstand it and twist it to our own ends, to our own advantage. And we do that because of our blindness and our idolatry. If you want a recent example of that, just think about last week. How the news that Fidel Castro, that murderous, tyrannical dictator who died at the age of 90, was reported by the press, the media, as being a controversial leader. A revolutionist who we could learn things from. Talk about whitewashing history. But why? Why are they doing that? Because in their idolatry, they're rewriting and misinterpreting and distorting and perverting history. But you know, we don't have to look just to the news. Let's bring it a little bit closer to home. What if I were to bring one one of you couples, you and your spouse, up here sit you down, or if you're not married, let me say I brought you up here and then maybe a close friend of yours. And I said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to recount for me a time in your life when the other person sinned against you or offended you. And I want you to explain that to me and then I want the other person to defend that. I can guarantee you what's going to happen in that scenario because it happens every day in my counseling office. What's going to happen is each party is going to twist the facts and the details of that event to put themselves in the best possible light. You know this. You you do this in your own marriage at home. It doesn't matter if you're in the counseling room or not. I do it in my own marriage. And why do we do that? We do that because we're blind in our idolatry. And so we try to twist and pervert our own history. So that we can delude ourselves into believing that we can be our own deliverer and bring about our own deliverance by the works of our own hands. And you see, this is exactly what Stephen is up against before the Sanhedrin. They're blind by their idolatry. And so they're bringing these accusations before him, <laughs> saying, Stephen, you have spoken against the temple the dwelling place of God. And we saw last week how he answers that. And, but they also say, and you've also taught against the law of Moses, saying that those customs are gone and done away with. And yet what's fascinating, what we're going to see today, the argument that we're going to see unfold, is how Stephen zeroes in on the life of Moses, the time of the Exodus, and he says, the reason that you think I'm rejecting Moses is because you have actually rejected Moses. You see, the charge and the accusation that you're bringing against me, you're actually guilty of. So Stephen's not just defending himself here. Oh, no, 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 no. You're missing it if you think he's just defending himself. He's doing way more than that. He's turning the tables and saying, you're guilty of rejecting Moses because you've misunderstood and misinterpreted the history of the life of Moses, his life and ministry, because of the blindness that your idolatry has brought into your life. Now, think about what a bold statement that is. Who's Stephen here talking to? The Sanhedrin. Do you know who makes up the Sanhedrin? It's the religious leaders of Israel the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the men whose full time job it was to study the scriptures. And then tell the people of Israel through the courts and other means how they bore on their lives and how they required God's obedience to them. And here is Stephen saying, you've misunderstood your history. You know the stories of Moses and Abraham and Joseph and David and Solomon, how you talk about those day after day, you've completely perverted that history because of your own idolatry. And so what Stephen's going to do here is he is going to zero in on the life of Moses and not give them a comprehensive retelling of the Exodus because they don't need that. Instead, he's going to highlight various aspects of Moses' life to show that just as the Sanhedrin rejected Moses, the unbelieving Israelites in the Old Testament rejected Moses as well. And because they've rejected Moses, the Sanhedrin has now rejected Jesus And also, Stephen himself. And the argument that Stephen makes here is broken up into three 40 year chunks. We know from Exodus chapter 34, verse 7, that Moses was how old when he died? He was 120. And so, rabbinical tradition dictated or showed typically that you broke the life of Moses into these three 40 year chunks. And Stephen's like, okay, I'll use that as a device for. I'm covering these three different time periods in Moses' life. And what he's going to show at every turn is that Moses was rejected by his people. God is pursuing his people. He wants to dwell with them. He wants to deliver them from their enemies. And so he's given them in Moses a deliverer and a deliverance graciously, mightily, powerfully. And yet Israel again and again has rejected it and turned away. And instead, chosen to try to bring about salvation by themselves, by the work of their own hands. And so, what we're going to see here in this argument, these three 40 year periods of Moses' life, is how, first of all, Moses was rejected as a baby in verses 17 through 22, how Moses was rejected as a young man in verses 23 through 29. And then how Moses was rejected as an older man later on in his ministry in verses 30 through 43. So let's first look then at how Moses was rejected as a baby. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Now, what Stephen is doing here is he's bridging the gap between where he left off with Joseph and then the transition now to entering into the life and ministry of Moses. And what he reminds us of is the fact that under the ministry and and leading and deliverance, really, that Joseph brought about for Egypt and for his father and his brothers, Jacob and his sons come and settle in the land of Egypt in Goshen. And they are quite successful there. Uh, The Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, treats them well. Because Joseph is such an asset to the country. And so what happens is, in that context, God, uh, fulfilling his promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, causes supernaturally and miraculously, because remember what a small band they are when they come to Goshen, their population just explodes. Remember, God promises Abraham, you're going to be a great nation. I'm going to do that for you. We see that promise here being fulfilled. And so things are going generally well for the Hebrews. But then something bad happens. Verse 18, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. So now tragedy is going to strike. Why? Because a king comes to power who doesn't know his history. He doesn't know about Joseph or he's forgotten about him. And so what does he start to do? He starts to mistreat the Hebrews. And this is all picking up, I mean, it's direct quotations from the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. He's just laying out pretty much Exodus chapter 1, highlighting various aspects here. Now, so what did this Egyptian king who didn't know about Joseph do? Verse 19, he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. Here's what's happening The Hebrews are are growing in population like crazy. The Egyptian king says, this is getting out of hand. If they keep growing and populating like this, they are going to overthrow us and remove power from us, and they're going to be the center of power. So we need to oppress them by putting them into slavery. But more than that, we also need to pass a law, I will pass an edict, a command that says that they need to kill any male Hebrew child that is born. Terrible time, terrible time in uh, the history of Israel and the Hebrews. And so this is the context then, as they're under the thumb, the Hebrews are under the thumb of their Egyptian enemies who are treating them with cruelty, oppressing them harshly, that then Moses is born. Verse 20, at this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. Stephen makes known to us the fact that Moses was set apart even from the time he was born as God's chosen deliverer, the one that God had special plans for in his redemptive work in freeing his covenant people from their captivity. And so he was brought up for three months in his father's house. So not only did God love Moses, but apparently his parents did as well because they didn't kill him right away. They kept him alive for three months. Until, as Exodus chapter one tells us, they couldn't keep it a secret anymore. And so what has to happen? They need to send him down. They need to expose him. So that his mom makes a basket of reeds, puts pitch on the bottom so it'll float, and sends him down the river. And what Stephen is trying to highlight here for us is the fact that his own family rejects him. His own people rejects him as a baby. You say, now wait a minute, that's not really rejection, is it? Well, it's not that they didn't love him, but they did reject him by sending him down the river. They left him basically to die. But then what happens? Though his family rejects him, God delivers and rescues Moses and uses this situation to actually prepare him for his ministry as the deliverer of God's people. And verse 21, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. He gets adopted into Pharaoh's family. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and his deeds. Think about this. Moses, who wrote the first 5 books of the Bible, was intimately trained in the language of the Egyptians, the music, the culture, the literature, the gods that they worship, their religion. And why did God do this? Give him the best education and allow him to just excel at it? He's preparing Moses to be the deliverer of his people, even though his people, his own family, had rejected him. Now, let's look at the next uh, 40-year chunk here in Moses' life. We see that in verses 23 through 29, how he was rejected as a young man, In his ministry. Look at verse 23. When he was forty years old, that's considered when you're a man in, in this at this time in Jewish culture, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And what Stephen is telling us here, and what we can see from Exodus chapter two, if we go back and look at it, is that even though Moses was raised and adopted into the house of Pharaoh himself and trained in all of these ways, he eventually rejected those ways and said, I want to identify with my people. I have compassion on them and their suffering. I want to move towards them and bring them out of that captivity that is so harsh. So a visit is not just like he went and hung out with the Hebrews. What's up, guys? How's it going? No, no, no. He identifies with their sufferings. He's going to be mistreated with them and seek to deliver them. And then we pick up on a specific event in verse 24, a specific example of this deliverance. And seeing one of them being wronged, seeing one of the Hebrews being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. We know from Exodus chapter 2 that what Moses does is he looks to the right and he looks to the left as this Hebrew is being abused by this Egyptian. Moses kills him and then buries him in the sand thinking that nobody saw what he had done now why did Moses do this well the next verse tells us he supposed that his brothers would understand this is verse 25 that God was giving them salvation by his hand but they did not understand he thought they'd know that he's here to be their deliverer to free them from the oppression of their enemies and yet they didn't get it because they're blind in their idolatry and so what do they what do they say to Moses Well, actually, we're going to look at that in a bit. Instead, we're going to look at another example here. Moses doesn't just see himself as the deliverer of God's people. He also sees himself as the reconciler of God's people one to another. We see that in verse 26. And the following day he appeared to them, that is Moses as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers, why do you wrong each other? So here they are, these two Hebrews about to go to blows at one another, and Moses says, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? We're not the enemy. The Egyptians are the enemy. We're on the same team here. Be reconciled to each other. He's trying to bring them together. And yet, what's their response? Look at verse 27. But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him, that is Moses, aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? So they say, Moses, by what authority do you try to assert this position of being a deliverer and a reconciler of us one to another over us? Whose authority are you doing this on? But they don't just reject him as their deliverer and reconciler, what do they also do? They accuse him. What? Moses, you're going to kill me like I saw you kill that Egyptian yesterday? And so what dawns on Moses is the fact that he can't stay in Egypt any longer. We know from Exodus chapter 2 that Pharaoh would uh, come and try to kill him, and so he gets out of there. He goes to Midian. He goes into exile. We see that in verse 29. At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. So he goes to Midian, he marries Zipporah, he has two sons, he names both of them in such a way that it shows that he's an exile, he's away from God's people. And yet, what's the point here? Why is Stephen showing us this specific example? God has raised Moses up as a deliverer of his people from their enemies, from their cruelty. And to reconcile them one to another. And yet, what do they do? They reject Moses and question his authority. So we've seen that Moses is rejected by his family when he's a baby. He's rejected by Israel as a young man. And now let's look at how he's rejected as an older man later on in his ministry. In verses 30 through 43. Look at verse 30 with me. Now when 40 years had passed... An angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. So, what do we have happening here? Stephen's highlighting this for two reasons. First of all, he's bolstering his argument that we saw last week as he mentioned the examples of Abraham and Joseph, that God doesn't just dwell and meet with his covenant people in a certain zip code. He doesn't just meet with them in Jerusalem or in Zion. He meets with his covenant people wherever he's pleased to meet with them, and wherever he meets with them, that is holy ground wherever he shows his faithfulness to his covenant people. And where is Moses? He's not even with the rest of the Hebrews. God's covenant people. He's in exile away from them. And God appears to him in a bush. And what does he say? He says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I am the God who made a covenant with Abraham. And though my people apparently have forgotten that promise... That covenant that I made with them, I have not. And so I am here. I am dwelling with you and I'm going to dwell with them so that I might bring them out of that captivity. And obviously Moses is he's amazed at this, right? This is a burning bush out in the desert. He's watching sheep and he sees this and it's amazing to see a burning bush at all, but then it's not being consumed. But then when he realizes the presence of God himself, through the angel of the Lord is there and speaking to him, what does he do? He turns away and he takes his sandals off because Moses, as a fallen sinful man, cannot stand and live to behold the fullness of the glory of God because of his sinfulness and God's holiness. And so God's saying, I remember my people Verse 34, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. I've come to visit them. I've come to free them. And how is he going to do that? Look at the end of verse 34. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. So the way that the Lord is going to bring this deliverance is through his chosen deliverer, Moses. But how does Israel respond? when Moses comes. This Moses, verse 35, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. So there's the answer to the question that the Israelites are asking. Who appointed you, Moses, as our ruler and judge? God did. God has called me to this mighty task that he will carry out By his own power. Verse 36. This man led them out. He led them out of exile in their captivity to Egypt. And as he was doing it, to show that God himself was doing it, he performed signs and wonders in Egypt. You remember the ten plagues while they were still in captivity. Each one showing that God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, was stronger than any of the Egyptian gods. Showing them all to be false gods. At best, demons. And then also at the Red Sea, where you remember God parts the Red Sea, so his people, his covenant people can walk through as on dry land. And yet when Pharaoh and his armies come through, what happens? They collapse on him and kill him and wipe his army out. And then also in the wilderness for 40 years, we don't have time to recount all of the signs and wonders that Moses performed there. And yet this is the Moses Who said to the Israelites, verse 37, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. Now why why does Stephen quote Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15? It's because Stephen's highlighting the fact that Moses understood that he wasn't some show in and of himself. He wasn't the end He was the means to an end. He was just a a sign pointing to a deeper reality. He was a shadow that was meant to lead you to the thing itself. Moses is saying, listen, I'm prophesying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that God is going to raise up a greater prophet than me, a greater deliverer than me, a greater lawgiver than me, and a greater deliverance from your enemies than God has brought about by my hand. And who is that Deliverer? Who is that one who is greater than Moses? Who is the ultimate prophet and Deliverer? The prophet, priest, and king? It's Jesus. It's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Go back to Acts chapter 3 with me. Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. Peter's speaking in Solomon's portico addressing his Hebrew brothers. He says in verse 17, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out." That signs of refreshing, times of refreshing rather, may come from the presence of the Lord and that He may send the Christ appointed for you. Who is the Christ? Who is the Messiah? It's Jesus, verse 20, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. Moses said, now here he quotes Deuteronomy 18 again, "...the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed." God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So you see, Jesus is the greater deliverer who doesn't just deliver his people from their physical enemies. No, no, no. He's delivered his people, his covenant chosen ones from their spiritual enemies of the flesh and the world and the devil and the wrath of God himself. And how has he done that? Through his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection and ascension. Because he is the lamb whose life was slaughtered. The perfect lamb of God who was slaughtered in our place so that we can go free. And he is the one who fulfilled the multifaceted mosaic law. Ceremonially and civilly and morally. Because the law of Moses was not meant as a means to save yourself. That's what the Sanhedrin thought. But the reality is the Mosaic law was given to show you you cannot save yourself. You need the blood of another to be shed as the sacrifices show you. You need someone else to live the life perfectly in your place that you failed to, and Jesus has come and done that for us. And yet the great tragedy is is that unbelieving Israel has rejected Jesus because they rejected Moses. You go, I don't, I don't know that I entirely see that. Let me show you where Jesus says this. Go to John chapter 5. John chapter 5 beginning in verse 39. <clears throat> Excuse me. Gospel of John chapter 5 beginning in verse 39. Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders of His day who have the same idolatrous hearts that the Sanhedrin of Stephen days days have. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. As if the Scriptures in and of themselves can give you eternal life. And yet, guess what? Jesus says, they bear witness about me. From Genesis to Revelation. What do the Scriptures tell us about? They tell us about Jesus. Not about how you can redeem yourself by the works of your hands, but how Jesus alone can save you. He is God's appointed deliverer who brings about God's deliverance by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Yet you refuse to come to me, verse 40, that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. You look for life and for glory from other people or from whatever your idol is. But I know that that's not where it's found. It's found in me. Verse 42, but I know that you do not have the love of the Father within you, the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. You reject me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Now, listen to this. Here's the shocker. Verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Who is it? It's Moses, on whom you have set your hope. You've missed the point. Moses is a sign pointing to Jesus, and you thought Moses was where it was at, his law, his actions. So you view this time with a sense of idealism, and you miss the point that it's all about Jesus. What? Listen to what he says in verse 46. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? You see what the problem is? Why they've rejected Jesus as the Messiah, God's chosen deliverer, who would bring deliverance? It's because they first rejected Moses. Just like unbelieving Israel did back then. What Stephen is showing is there's this long line of rejection, and you are just the sons of your fathers. And so, because you've perverted your history, and because you've rejected Moses and what his ministry and life were all about, you have now rejected Jesus the Messiah. And that's exactly why you're going to reject me as well. And do you know why they rejected him? They rejected him because of their own idolatry. We see that in verse 38. There was one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. By the way, just as a side note, does that sound like he's denigrating the role of Moses? Pretty lofty language, and that's, those are pretty lofty actions. No, no, he's not denigrating Moses. He's putting Moses in his proper place, that he's not the ultimate deliverer. And he didn't bring the ultimate deliverance. Verse 39, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. Did you hear that? They reject God. They reject Moses because their hearts were turned to Egypt. They were turned to their idols, not to the one true living God who was delivering him by the hands of, of Moses. Verse 40, saying to Aaron, this is what the unbelieving Israelites are saying, make for us gods who will go before us. Talking about the golden calf here. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Well, apparently he disappeared and we don't know what God's doing with him. So make us a god, Aaron. And we'll worship that and let's go into the promised land. They're trying to bring about their own deliverance by the works of their own hands. Stephen makes that abundantly clear. Look at verse 41. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol. And listen to this. And they were rejoicing in the works of their own hands. They thought that their own hands could save them. That's why they rejected Jesus. Because of their idolatry. They think that they can be their own deliverer. They think they can bring about their own deliverance by making this idol that would then lead them into the promised land. But you know, that's not the greatest tragedy of all. The greatest tragedy of all isn't that they turned away from the living God to idolatry. The greatest tragedy of all is what God does in response. Look at verse 42. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, As it is written in the book of the prophets, and here he quotes Amos 5 25 through 27, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. No, they did not worship God, they worshiped the creation rather than the Creator, and God is the one who gave them over to, like, over to that. What does that sound like, by the way? Doesn't that sound like Romans chapter 1? Paul writes there in his letter to the Roman churches. I don't think it's a coincidence that who was here listening to this sermon? Saul. He hears this. He speaks about it later on in Romans chapter 1. God gave them over to worship that which they should not have worshipped. This is God's judgment on them. So what is Stephen doing here? He's saying, you're accusing me, Sanhedrin, of denigrating and speaking against and teaching against the law of Moses and rejecting him. It's actually you. And here is God's judgment. You worship your golden calves. The temple, yes, it was a gift from God, but they twisted it. Moses, yes, he was a gift from God, but they twisted it and perverted it in their idolatry. The law of Moses, thinking that you can save yourself by the works of your own hands, they twisted and perverted all of these things. And so as judgment, God has given them over. Part of God's judgment is that they actually stone Stephen. Because at the end of this, what do we see happening? Stephen's being stoned and he looks up and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. To receive him, saying, Well done. Come on home. And yet, who gets ultimately rejected by God? It's the Sanhedrin. And so that's Stephen's argument, Stephen's argument, taking these various times in Moses' life saying, You have rejected God's deliverer and his deliverance over and over and over again. But brothers and sisters, if we think that only applied to the Sanhedrin and doesn't apply to us today, then we have completely missed it. We're showing just how blind we still are. Now, don't get me wrong. As Christians, we're not dead to God. We're not spiritually dead. We're not completely and entirely given over to our idols. We don't have the kind of blindness to that extent. It's a matter of degree, that unbelievers do, but we still do have that element of the flesh within our hearts, don't we? That part of us that does not have dominance in our lives but is still there that tempts us and causes it, leads us to sin, that part of us that is still in rebellion against God and, and His deliverer, that's our idolatry and that brings blindness. And that's why at various times in our Christian lives, And usually for me, multiple times a day, I return back to the works of my own hands. Maybe I can be good enough. Maybe I can be nice enough. Maybe I can be kind enough. Maybe I can give up enough for God. Maybe if I go to church, maybe if I share the gospel with that person, these are all good things. But if I think that that is how I justify myself before God, they've become idols. And they're the works of my own hands. And we're missing out on the communion and the fellowship that God wants to have with us and that He has made available for us in sending Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ. We miss out on fellowship then with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and instead have fellowship with us in a false idol that makes us blind and deaf and dumb. So I encourage you, search your own hearts and say, where's the idolatry in my life? Where am I turning to myself as a deliverer? looking for deliverance from my own hands rather than the deliverance that Christ brings? How am I rejecting Him? And then repent of it. But don't sit and stew on that. For every one look you take at that, take ten more looks at your glorious Redeemer and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then like Stephen boldly proclaimed the good news to unbelievers. The only difference between Stephen and the Sanhedrin, notice how many times he says fathers, brothers, our descendants. He says, I'm one of you. What makes the difference is the Holy Spirit who's come and opened my eyes and regenerated my heart and united me to Christ. And now I want you to receive him as well. Are we driven by that kind of compassion And love for people as they're on their way to hell under the wrath of God because they're lost and blind in their own idolatry? Are you moved as Moses was in compassion for those who are lost? Jesus has that kind of compassion for those who are lost, and so we should too. And then if you're an unbeliever here this morning, I plead with you. I know you know this. You can't deliver yourself. I know you're exhausted, from trying to do that or you're deluded and distracting yourself from the reality that you're a miserable failure at trying to redeem yourself before a holy God. You can't do it by the works of your hands. You cannot be your own deliverer. So turn to Christ. See Him there compassionately with great pity looking on you and saying, I came and took flesh that i might redeem you i lived the life you failed to i died on the cross to redeem you then i rose and i sit at the father's right hand and he says to you come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and i will give you rest for i'm gentle and lowly in spirit i'll give you rest for your souls i know that's the rest you long for and so I pray that the Spirit would free you from your blind idolatry to return to Him. And oh, may God be pleased to empower us to put more and more to death the idols that still rule in our hearts. And as He does that, and as we gaze by grace through faith at our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, may we be able to say along with the old hymn writer, not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to Thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. Let me pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we acknowledge You have created us to bring glory to Your name. And yet, we rebelled against you. We turned against you. We've sinned. And in idolatry and in blindness and in pride, we've thought that we can be our own deliverer and save ourselves by the works of our hands. And as a result, we skew the scriptures, we skew our own history. And Father, all of this is an attempt to run away from you. And as a result, our hearts are filled with unrest and anguish, and anxiety. And so, Father, we pray that you would turn our eyes towards your Son, the promised deliverer who has now come in the flesh, not just to dwell among us, but as we know now from the New Testament, to dwell as us, pleased with man, with men, as man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. So may we be focused on him and in light of how glorious He is, cast down our idols before You and know that though they promise life, they bring nothing but bondage, just like Egypt did to the Israelites. And Father, I pray for those who do not know You that are here this morning, that You would take Your Word as feebly as it's been preached, and that You would make known the glories of Christ to them, and that they might be brought from spiritual death to spiritual life to the praise of your glorious grace. Father, do that, we pray, in our midst. And Father, we also pray that we would leave this place armed and motivated to declare at the cost of our own lives if necessary, ready to turn the other cheek and to die if necessary so that others might hear the good news of Jesus, the deliverance that he brings and the mighty deliverer that he is. We pray that you would do this in our midst, And we ask this all in the name of Jesus, our great deliverer, and for his sake. Amen.